sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love, the government of the government love, the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney, Jay Carson. Good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay, how you doing? I'm I'm trying to get up the, the, the stairs, but I, I just keep slipping back down. It's one <laughs> yeah. of those kind of warnings. So. Yeah, I'm feeling sort of like a large ship stuck in the Suez Canal or something <laughs> like that, but there we go. Anyway, we will get through it, but before we get started, I want to thank our newest supporters on Patreon, Chris, Donna, Charlie, and Corey. We really do appreciate it. Uh, and of course, when you're a Patreon supporter, you get that second full-length episode every week, our midweek episode, and also ad-free versions of all of our shows, as well as different stuff or different levels of support. To check it all out, go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And as always, if you'd like the bonus show, but you can't afford to financially support us right now, totally not a problem. We understand. Just send me an email, mike at com, and I will get you all set up. And if a monthly pledge had too much of a commitment or you'd like to support us on a one-time or recurring basis but don't want to go through Patreon, there's also our PayPal option, uh, and you can find that politicsguys.com slash support. And we're also now on Venmo at politicsguys. All right. So, Jay, you know, last week we talked about the tragic Georgia spa killings. And sadly, you know, this week we have another mass shooting to talk about. This one in Boulder, Colorado, where 10 people were killed. The shooter has been identified as Ahmad Al-Alibi Alisa. I hope I got that right. And he's currently in custody, of course, and being charged with 10 counts of first degree murder and one count of attempted first degree murder. And the weapon he used was a Ruger AR-556, which is essentially an AR-15 sort of cut down in the barrel and the stock to qualify as a pistol rather than a rifle. And he purchased that just six days before the shooting. I should mention the AR-15s, which are basically a semi-automatic version of the military's M-16, have been used in a large number of mass shootings. It's kind of a, a popular weapon. It's got that military look, of course. It's very customizable, uh, accurate, lightweight, low recoil, that sort of it's thing. It's actually one of the, the best-selling guns, yeah. if not the best-selling gun, I think, in, in the United States. Yeah, and so, you know, it's not surprising that it shows up in a lot of these uh, a lot of these incidents. And in the wake of the shooting, President Biden called on the Senate to pass two background check bills that already have been approved by the House and also for Congress to reenact an assault weapons ban. And, you know, Jay, we've talked far too many times on this show over the years about mass shootings. And every time, it seems to me at least, that it's basically the same story. There's understandable and, you know, righteous grief and outrage at the shooting. There are calls from le- for legislative action from Democrats. There's strong resistance from any sort of legislative fix, mostly from Republicans. And then nothing happens. And then there's another mass shooting. And we go through the same thing again. So I guess I won't assume that that's how you see it. But first off, I guess, do you see it that way? And if so, do you see that basic storyline changing this time? No, I, I, I don't really. I mean, I, I think that is just sort of the, the storyline and that's how it's gone since, I mean, I'm, you know, we, I, I don't want to say mass shootings are just a, a recent phenomenon. They seem to be more prevalent than, than they were. Perhaps that, that might be uh, reporting, uh, but 
But I mean, when I when you first started hearing of these sort of things back in the, I want to say eighties, nineties, um, uh, you know, maybe the the first, you know, Columbine being the the, the first sure. notorious, but yeah, so it, it's been that. So we're you know we're we're looking at twenty years essentially of 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 this happening, and uh, the yeah the it's the the two knee jerk reactions is one is we need more gun. Uh, control and uh, then there's the pushback on that uh, and then we sort of go away and and the, the, the there's there's certain and this is sort of a little grim um, and cynical uh, and I know you don't like me to be grim and cynical but that's <laughs> like I said that's that's kind of my brand um, is, is there to some extent both sides get what they want right um, which is uh, they they have an issue uh, to campaign on. They have an issue to fundraise on, um, and you know so every you know time one of these strategies comes out, you'll you'll see you'll get in the mail. At least I do, um, and you probably get them from the other side saying you know please help us yeah. uh, get rid of this. Please donate so we can stop these mass shootings. And then I get the letter saying uh, Biden's coming for your guns. Um, you know please you know help help stop him. Um, and and you know this kind of keeps playing out, and, and both sides are get are sort of satisfied because they have the issue to fight over, um, and uh, sort of the rev up their base with, um, and and to me I think one of one of the bigger policy problems is with mass shootings. This this is a a a a problem that in a lot of ways I think defies most policy solutions or at least we haven't come up with them yet right if we would they wouldn't keep happening um because we have have you know plenty of of uh, uh uh checks on 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 firearm sales and so forth um has it made a difference well maybe it's it's cuz it's it's always hard to determine deterrence right um but it, certainly it hasn't eliminated the problem um and 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 secondly i you know there's there's often um a push to say, look, one of the bigger, bigger issues that we need to take a look at is mental health. Um, and I, I think that played a role both in, in this, uh, the Colorado shooting and the Georgia shooting. Um, but that's, that is something that's terribly difficult to get at from a, a public policy standpoint. And even from a, from a medical public health standpoint, it's just not an easy problem to solve. Yeah. Well, um, I, I guess. So we fall back on sort of this other, you know, response, the knee jerk response. Yeah, I guess I would say you know, I, that I think we do know what the policy solution is because we've seen a policy solution implemented in, in other countries. It's just we don't have the political will to do that. Uh, you know, we have an awful lot of guns in this country. That's not going to change anytime soon. And, uh, you know, there are there are ways to, you know, massive buyback programs, uh, uh, significant restrictions, but none of that's going to happen. That is sort of the I, I mean, the, the well, cynical but, way, the cynical way to look at it is to say that we know what we can do to make our rates of gun violence in this country more in line with the rest of the world. But we are not willing to do that. That's the price we pay to have all these firearms because, you know, other countries certainly, you know, we're not unique in our levels of mental illness or anything like that. I don't think, but we have more. Oh, I think we these, might be. I, I don't, I don't think that's true. I, I'd be interested to take a look at, at that. All. But, and again, it, that's one of those, I mean, how do you measure it? I mean, I'm not sure that there's a good metric of, um, you know, how you, you, you know, you don't report on the, the census, uh, Hey, I'm mentally ill. Um, but, uh, 
I'd push back on that in, in just that if the problem is just too many guns laying around and, and we ought to have buybacks and so forth, the, the Colorado shooter would seem to be an argument against that. And this is a guy who, as you said, bought his, his gun a week before he used it. Um, he went through the appropriate background checks. He bought it legally, as, at least as far as we can tell at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there, there would have been no red flags in his past it would have disqualified him. He had a he had a misdemeanor uh, 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 charge uh, for assault, I think, when he was uh, essentially still a minor. Um, and uh, so, so no, but I mean, I, but all, all the, I mean, the whole the whole regimen. Look, you can have a, a buyback, you can have background checks, you can have a waiting period. Um, none of that would have affected the Colorado shooter. Right. And now if there were, say, an assault weapons ban, maybe he would have bought something else. And and I I see what you're saying. And there are, you know, potential uh, bans or limitations on magazine capacity and other things. What I'm saying is, is that we can do things. There are things government can do that would make this sort of thing far less likely. But Americans in general do not believe those things are palatable. And that's, you know, that's, that's a trade-off that we make. And, and I'm, you know, I guess I, in a sense, I'm, I won't say I'm fine, but I appreciate the honesty of gun rights advocates who say, yes, our gun violence, our gun death rates are far higher than anyone else, but that's the price we pay for the right to have the right to bear arms. And that's a, that's a logically defensible argument. I, I, I would, you know, want to err more on the side of fewer gun deaths and more restrictions. But what, what I, what really bugs me are these, what I feel are intellectually dishonest arguments about, well, you know, guns don't kill people or something like, you know, that, that kind of, uh, that kind of junk. Well, let me, let me step in. Cause I, I, on the one hand, I, I think you, you did a pretty good job characterizing the position of, of the the right, but I, I would put sort of a little, gloss on it and and that is that you know in saying look you we accept a certain level of violence uh in exchange for our, our the right to own firearms um i would perhaps look at it the other way that that a lot of uh, conservatives see the world as there's a certain amount of violence out there uh therefore uh i need to have the right to, to own a firearm it becomes kind of a vicious circle there well yeah, it, I mean, it I does mean... a little bit but but if you consider i mean look if, if you look at it from from the point of view as if you're a a, a criminal you are not going to uh, follow whatever laws are out there uh now it might be more difficult for you to get a gun uh you might have to jump through more hoops to get it illegally uh and maybe there's there there you can weed out some folks there um but you're not going to stop it altogether. No, of course and, not. And, and I think that's then sort of the, the conservative response is, is listen, well, I mean, there's, there's, you know, two, <clears throat> there, there are a couple different subsets of, of more than a couple uh, of, of, of gun owners, I think, and, and their reasons for gun ownership. Uh, some of them are, you know, purely recreational hunting, sporting, target shooting. Some are, uh, it, it's more a, a, you know, tradition, heritage-based kind of, you know, I've, you know, grandpa had a gun, I have grandpa, I, you know, we've always had guns. Uh, some it is uh, self-protection. Um, and some it's, uh, I'm very insecure of my masculinity, and so I want to have 37 no, and, guns. Yeah, there's <laughs> some of that. Some, some is, yeah, the government's coming and uh, uh, so forth, and I have to be ready for them. Um, but but I, I think 
there there is a a a sense in the conservative mind, right, that there is always a a a certain quantum of of violence of crazy out there, uh, and there's an understanding that government can't stop it um, because that's just the nature of the world, right? It's well, yeah, the, let, um, let me but let me just stop you there. But of course, when we look at the nature of the world in other countries, it's very different. Yeah. So maybe we're just uh, maybe are, are you saying sort of culturally, maybe we're just a more violent people than the, I don't know, than the Swedes or the Japanese or something like that? Um, maybe. I mean, it, it's there. There are a lot of factors that, that go into that. Right. Um, and some of it's just the the overall uh, uh culture i mean for example um look you you can say uh you know china doesn't have a gun violence problem um yeah i don't want to go quite that far what china's doing sure no i know what you're saying and it's a matter i mean i i want to be clear is i you know i believe that the second amendment confers an individual right to bear arms i think that that you know the decision the court what was it 20 i don't know the heller decision was was correct 2015 2015 use firearms in the past and i i get i get the attraction certainly you're probably a bigger yeah much bigger firearm user than i am yeah, obviously I, I mean I, I get my my general position where i come down is i feel like it's it's not unreasonable for firearms to be as uh to be regulated as rigorously as car ownership and driving you know the same sort of standards yeah. i would be happy if the same sort of standards uh applied and and they don't of course but uh, you know in terms of what actually Will happen? I, yeah, I don't think anything's going to happen here. It seems to me, even though President Biden made those comments, there there are really no. He's not pushing any legislative proposals. I think it's it's he's much more concerned with other things, you know, voting rights, infrastructure, health care, that sort of thing. And and I think it's just the decision of well, what do we what what do you expend your political capital on? What's likely to happen? And this is a fight. I think that that. President Biden feels that there just is not much chance of success and it would take a lot of time and energy and effort. And so therefore let's not go there. Uh, you know, and, and I, I think that's a, I think that's probably a reasonable political calculation to make. Yeah, no, I think it's, that's absolutely the, the correct, especially with the 50, 50 yeah, Senate. Right? Exactly. And, and if you consider there, there is more, um, uh, uh, heterodoxy, I guess, uh, in the Democratic Party on guns than mm-hmm. there, are, there is on, say, something like abortion. Yeah. Um, and, and you would risk uh, losing, you know, the Joe Manchins of the world and, and uh, others um, yeah. uh, on, on any kind of, you know, real push on that. So there we go. When there, um, yeah, when there's a lot of, yeah. And I, and I think so often, you know, you and I talk about these things and, and maybe people don't, maybe we don't make it clear that, I mean, I guess in any administration, in any, you have a a finite amount of political capital to expend, um, and you have a finite amount of effort that you can yeah. you can put towards things, and you have to make choices about where you you make those efforts. And uh, if you're you're doing things like a 1.9 trillion rescue project and working on another three trillion. Uh, dollar, th- you're you're just not going to be able to yeah. have that that big ask and oh one more thing I want you to stick your neck out for me on on a, on on a gun sure. rights issue and and as you point out the votes just aren't there in the Senate you could I don't even know the votes would be there in the House really but they definitely aren't there in the Senate so it's just it's pointless to spend the time on something that just won't you know won't pass so yeah. you know and I and I would again go back to I think there is a a 
big argument to be had um, regarding uh, gun violence and mental health and how that might be dealt with. Um, and actually, I think you'd pick up some Republican votes there. Um, that yeah. would probably come mm-hmm. in the form of, of you know, more money to to mental health services. Now, again, does that necessarily solve the problem, fix the problem? I don't know, because like I said, it's it's a hard problem to fix. Yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, absolutely. But, and yeah, I, I certainly just in general, more money, more money, more support for mental health services, I think would be a great thing in general. And uh, yeah, um, you know, I Sort of on a related note, well, on a related note, last week, as I mentioned, we did a we did a segment on the Georgia mass shootings, and uh, it, it resulted in the most listener criticism we've gotten in, in a long time, maybe even ever. I was kind of surprised by that. You know, there was a there was this big back and forth about it. On I, the, I was not. Uh, well, I, I was, and uh, I, I was. I always check in on the bipartisan politics Reddit group, uh, which is it's great. I should put in a plug there. Uh, they do. That's the group that I started on Reddit, but then I turned it over to some uh, some other moderators, some some people who do some great stuff. And every week, uh, Mevred. Uh, posts like these amazing show notes with comments and links and so forth. It's just really great. But And this week there was a big discussion there on it. And we, we came in for a lot of criticism. And people really took issue with how we approach this story for a number of reasons. But, but it seemed to me that it boiled down to a few main things. Uh, first, was a sense that we were minimizing the rise in AAPI intolerance, especially UJ, and that yep. I wasn't pushing back hard enough on that. And related to that was the argument that we uh, we we aired, I guess you could say, in making the focus of our discussion, the media's attempt to fit something into a certain narrative as opposed to the shootings themselves and, and the rise in racial intolerance, which we did talk about, but kind of after that. And so uh, what do you what do you think about that? I mean, I actually, I, I was surprised. Like I said, I actually went back and re-listened to the segment, but I wanted to get your your take on that. You said you weren't surprised. I was not surprised. No, and and look, and I I stand by everything I said last week. Um, in fact, the the reaction to to me, I mean, makes sort of the the point that I'm I'm I was trying to make. The if, if I mean. The media and our culture, I'd say mostly the media um, and our, our politicians, does, does a, dis, a severe disservice uh, to our country when they lock themselves into this racial narrative. And I think that's what happened. Um, and, and the idea that we're minimizing um, uh, uh, rising violence against Asians um, I mean, let's look at what I said. I mean, I, I let off the show and did the show notes, and I said, well, listen, there's, there has been documented at this point a 150% increase. But I put in the caveat that, look, if you look at the, the actual numbers, they are, are, are minuscule, right? And again, for example, I, I know in Los Angeles, the, the number of, of anti-Asian hate crimes jumped from 7 to 15. Right. Uh, nationally, I want to say that the, the numbers, and I, I don't have them in front of me, but it was something on the, in the line of 49 to 120-ish or something like that in a country of, of 380 million. The um, three, 327, I think. But yeah, still, yeah. point taken. And I, I, But 
I, this is where I feel like, see, I, when I listened to it again, I actually uh, felt there was something to some of, of the critiques. I, I feel like I should have pushed harder on that, saying, well, that's true. These are reported hate crimes, but there are plenty of things almost certainly that don't rise to the level of hate crimes that constitute intolerance. And sure. we did talk about that, but I feel like I didn't give that the uh, the emphasis that I should have. And I believe I believe that was, uh, you know, that was a mistake in, in terms of emphasis on my part. But let, let's let's put it this way. Why? Why? Uh, I mean, and I think my, uh, you know, sentiment was, you know, is is intolerance uh, necessarily the, the government's business? Um, obviously, crimes are, hate crimes are, violence is. Um, but but secondly, I mean, if if we are trying to make policy decisions or policy diagnoses, right, based on things that aren't reported, um, I mean, that's problematic, right? That's sort of you know buying into that that narrative, saying, okay, well, here's the numbers. Well, the numbers are probably wrong because the numbers don't fit the narrative. Um, well, let, let me stop you there. It's not that the numbers are probably wrong because the numbers don't fit the narrative. It's that we're, we're making a distinction between two different things. We don't have right. any numbers for intolerance. Right. We have numbers for reported hate crimes. Right. But, uh, you know, somebody yelling out some ridiculous, horrible slur, that's not going to be a reported hate no. crime. But that but certainly more, is, is unacceptable intolerance that, you know, is, is a problem. Right. But what evidence do we – what I'm saying is is – Where's the evidence for that other than just anecdotal? You mean other than, say, the former president's rallies and comments and things like that? I mean, there's evidence well, I don't there. think every year. Well, no, no. I, I'm, no. I'm I mean, saying, he didn't go to the – I'm saying as far as, you know, people experience it, that, you know, there is there is this uh, fear that uh, Asians are being targeted. Um, I'm just – where is – and again, if, if you even break down the um, uh, the the actual crimes – against Asians. In most cases, they they seem to fit in line with uh, overall increases in crime based on, on the neighborhoods, based on increases in crime that have occurred over the last year, you know, most related to COVID lockdowns, et cetera. Um, so I, and I, let me, here's the other thing, and maybe I should, uh, best way I can explain it, my my big, big issue, and well, let me, let me back up one more time. Um, the other piece, if you want to say intolerance is bad, is a problem, okay, uh, agreed. Um, but it's certainly different than mass shootings, right? Oh, sure. Um, there are plenty of people who may have an intolerant attitude. They may be jerks. Um, uh, but does that necessarily follow that they are a, a danger, uh, that they are uh, killers in waiting, um, right? There are there are plenty of people who, who have... Uh, backwards, bigoted attitudes uh, and prejudices, um, but I mean, are, are they are they a danger to society because of those? Um, I well, would say no. Those people have lived among us for for you know hundreds of years, um, and it's you know what what should the government concern itself uh, primarily with is well actual uh, issues where there there are crimes. And and again, going back to the facts of the Georgia shooting, uh, I think that. That uh, pinning this on a, a racial motive uh, just just doesn't make sense. I mean, is there a racial component? Perhaps, but um, the shooter did not. He didn't go into three Chinese restaurants, right? Sure. There was there was a, a specific um, target, and it was related to his sexual uh, uh, addiction. 
Um, and, and I think that's what troubles me when the media says, oh, look, this is, uh, this is racist. Uh, and here is something else that, that may be happening that, that we can't quite quantify. Um, you know, and I, it's, I, I hear you there, but, but I also think, and some, some people point out, say, well, why would we, you know, here's somebody who just went and killed eight people and we should just assume that he's telling the truth about why he did that. Why would, why would we necessarily just give this person the benefit of the doubt, believing that they're a person of great integrity and explaining their motives? And I think, you know, maybe there's something to that. Maybe I was a little quick to say, well, the killer, the killer said that he, there wasn't a racial motive. So therefore there wasn't, and I'm not saying you're wrong here. I'm just saying maybe I was, I feel like in, in, in listening to the comments and re-listening to the segment that maybe I was a little quick to jump the other way on it to say, well, let's, you know what I'm saying? I, maybe I overreacted in that sense. Well, let me, again, I, I, I will, I'm standing my ground here. Okay. Um, wh why would he lie? I don't know. I mean, I mean it, he's it clearly seems, a disturbed it's just, person. It seems just a very strange sort of thing of, of uh, you're going to uh, essentially confess to, to murdering eight people and they ask you why you did it. Um, and then he, he makes up a different reason saying he's a sex addict because, look, he, you know, he doesn't want the police to get the wrong idea about him. Um, I, I hear what you're me, saying. Me, yeah. just, you know, seems kind of kind of. Goofy. And the other piece is, if we're looking at what evidence do we have, um, at that point, the best evidence we have is his actual statement. Sure. Right. And, yeah. and look, it's 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 in the law what you would call a a statement against interest. You know, saying, "Look, I killed these people because of my my uh, uh, I was concerned that they were essentially feeding my sex addiction." Um, that's a pretty big statement against uh, interest. And don't get me wrong. I, I'm saying I I think that. Yes, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that. Oh, I'm saying, and I, I, if I had a bet, I would say that, you know, that, that more of the evidence is on that side. I'm just saying I was maybe too what's quick. The, what's the evidence on the other side? Well, the evidence on the other side is just the the fact of the the racial component in terms of the, I mean, the actual results. I mean, regardless of what the shooter's conscious intent was, we know that this was an act of violence perpetrated largely against Asians. I mean, that's was, just that's just there, the fact. Some of, uh, there was at least one of the victims was Hispanic. That's why I said largely against, not wholly right. against. And so, <laughs> but, but again, I mean, wouldn't that cut against if if your motive is racial? I'm going to go out and and uh, kill Asian people because I hate them. Uh, why do you also kill the, the Hispanic person? Well, you, you're not necessarily doing this, you know, with the with the understood. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, right. It's not. I think not, sometimes. I think sometimes during this discussion, maybe you're you're assuming a level of rationality on the part of this clearly disturbed person that maybe isn't necessarily warranted. Right. No, no, not at all. I'm, I'm assuming, but what I'm assuming is the, there is a rationality that, is, that was ascribed to him by the media. Sure. Yeah. I'm saying here's the motive. Sure. Yeah. If this is what he went, went out to do. This is what, you know, because there's no question about what he did. Yeah. Um, it's the only question is motive. And he says, this is my motive. And the the media ascribed a different motive, absent any real evidence, and even with evidence to the contrary. And that's that's my problem. No, so, I hear I hear I hear what you're saying, and I understand you're standing around. I'm I'm saying that I don't necessarily I don't necessarily, you know, go back on anything I said. I just feel like I maybe jumped to that point. I didn't give the other those other right. considerations enough enough thought maybe uh in that. But you know, there was 
there was another uh, concern, I guess you could say, and this just totally took me by surprise, and I'm, I'm embarrassed that uh, it did. Uh, Maggie, one of our Patreon supporters, wrote in and said, you know, why why hadn't we discussed the shootings as a, as a hate crime against women? And, and I thought, you know, that's a really good point. And not only that, but we didn't even talk about issues in, in, involving the uh, stigma against sex workers. And because that's clearly, I mean, he, he said that was sure. a, a yeah, motive. And he said that's the motive. Yeah. That that totally wasn't part of our conversation. And I thought, wow, um, I, I missed that entirely. And in part, I don't feel like the media narrative was on that. And maybe you know, I feel like in, in that sense, if I were to, we were to discuss the story again, I would have talked a lot more about that. And I just, that just totally uh, passed me by. And, you know, maybe it's because I'm a guy and I didn't think about it in those terms. I don't know, but I, I miss that. Well, uh, again, also several men were killed. Yeah, so but it, pretty it, clearly, again, he, I mean, but, but wait a second. Now, now, if you're going to say that we need to go based on what the, what the killer said, the yeah. killer clearly said that, you know, he was trying to kill these women because of his sex addiction. And he wanted to remove well, the temptation. He kill these women because of his sex addiction. He, 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 he was having sex the with the women. Because of the, the yeah, sex addiction. But he was, it was to remove the temptation. So, yes. I mean, it would be using the same logic that you used. I mean, clearly then the overwhelming weight of the evidence would suggest this is a crime against sex workers for being sex workers against female sex workers in particular. And that was a, a, a huge component of it that we didn't even look at. Yeah, no. And I think, I think that's the much more rational reading of, of what happened. Um, let, let me say this is I, I think there may be facts yet to come out. Sure. Um, and, and for us to wade in on some of these issues might, might be premature on, on some of those facts. But I, I, I think there's, there's something that's, that's interesting that may be missing from the story, which again, to me is a question the media hasn't answered or hasn't even asked. Most of the victims were, well, let's put it this way. None of the victims, uh, were young women. And I think that that may be indicative of, of something. And, and I'm not mm. sure what yet. I'm not sure we have all the facts yet. Um, I'm, not, I'm not really sure where you're going here with this. Yeah, but... that's fine. <laughs> okay. Um, but, but no, my, my, the, he, I don't, I don't want to speculate, right? Um, but you could say, if his if it was the the sex workers uh, who were actually providing sex, um, you would have expected to see uh, more younger women as victims. Hmm. Um, I I yeah I, I think you're you're, yeah I think you're going yeah far too uh, trying to get far too much into this person's head and reasoning and well, maybe reading too much into this. That's what we're trying and being asked to do, right? I mean. Well, yeah, they're to a certain extent, but then there's, it's easy to go too far. Well, they were between the ages of, you know, uh, median age if, was uh, 36.7 yeah. or something like that. Now, if it had been 21.4, I would, you know, draw one. I think that's just kind of trying to do too much with what we have. Maybe. Okay. But, uh, but I mean, yeah. I guess my, my question is, were there, were there any, uh, well, again, we just don't have the yeah. information. And again, that's, that's why. I, Sure. My bigger problem is with with the media of in in the absence of information, what they did is is insert the racial narrative. Yeah. 
And just just to be clear before we do move on, it's it's I think what we both agree on is that uh, AAPI intolerance is seems to be on the rise based on the information we have, and we both find that reprehensible. And uh, absolutely, yeah. So there you go. All right. I would I would, I would even I would even Mike I would even go so far as to say that Asian Americans are are heavily discriminated against in things like college admissions. Um, That's a, a, and, another story. Yeah, in fact, there have been and some the Biden administration took a, yeah. took a took a less sympathetic position uh, to that than than what I, what I uh, would. Um, but you know, actually, I'll tell you what. Can I? You know, if 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 you could indulge me for like two minutes, let me just, <laughs> sure. Let me just no. This is and then not on that issue, but because I think this is really important. Okay, uh, sure. In, into where I'm coming from and my view of the media and the racial narrative. So, you know, growing up where I did in Youngstown, we lived in the suburbs, and there was the the sense, the the common sense that going downtown was uh quote unquote dangerous, right? There were bad areas. You don't want to go there. Uh particularly if you're a white person. Um that was a a racial narrative uh that that really didn't have much basis in fact. Uh there was a lot of violence um uh, in Youngstown in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, a lot of it gang related. Um, but it, it, the the chance of of uh, someone, uh, a visitor from the suburbs being randomly uh, attacked were slim. Yet that narrative persisted uh, to the extent that, no, people don't want to go downtown. There was there was a, a sort of urban legend. It was actually on, on our our radio someone called in this is you know talk radio late 80s that uh you know they'd heard that uh in order to get uh, get into a gang the initiation was you had to cut off the person of they cut off a finger of a white person and that what these these gang potential gang members were doing was they would uh lay underneath a car parked out at the mall in the suburbs um and when you approached the car uh this was around christmas time was december uh, they would, uh, you know, slash your ankle, and then when you reach down to get your ankle, then they would they would slash off your finger, and then take that, and and with that, uh, gain admittance to uh, the gang of their choice. Um, it it was obviously ridiculous, right? Um, but but people believe this. It was like, oh, did you hear what they're doing at the mall? Um, and and this is a racial narrative, right? And it, what it did was it was saying. White people look out. Uh, the black people are out to get you. Um, that narrative is is one. It, it was completely fallacious. It was not based on any kind of fact. Uh, and two, it was it was damaging in that it heightened racism. It it made people more afraid of others where they shouldn't be. And my concern is when you have the media that jumps into a void where they don't have any actual information and says. Hey, uh, look out! Whether it's uh, whether it's whatever minority group, whether it's Biden saying you know the you know you put y'all back in chains, whether it was the every time you don't uh, vote a church burns, um, or if it's this narrative of uh, people are going to shoot you because you're Asian because of something Trump said. But see that that seems to me that, that, that's in, inverted. That infects this. That that's I mean I think that's that's bad. And you're, the media is putting these narratives out there. In the absence of actual facts, and yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying, and I agree, Jerome. But I think you've inverted it because, on the one hand, with the example you gave, that the message there is don't don't prejudge black people negatively. Don't have don't have fear toward 
black Americans because of this false narrative. But right. this is this is the reverse of that. This isn't about, you know, people concerns about people being afraid of Asians. This is about. No, this, no, 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 no. What it's doing, though, is, is you're it's telling Asians you should be afraid of the rest of the country. And I think that is that is damaging whenever we tell one uh, group, one racial group that you ought to be afraid of the other. See, I that's don't think that's the message. I don't think that's the message at all. I think I think the message is is uh, don't don't hate on Asians because they're Asians, and I think that's a pretty healthy message. Right, right, but no, but but implicit in that is that there is this hate against Asians that they need to be afraid of, and and I think that's that's a problem. It, it, when when that when when you don't have the hard evidence to try to to see, to really, yeah, I see. Well, what you're, you're trying to take or you're trying to take something like the Georgia shooting. And and put it into that racial narrative. That and, to me is the the big problem. But here's and here's I think where a lot of listeners took issue, particularly with you and for me for not pushing back hard enough on that, is that is that that may be true, but it's it's easy then for people to use that to minimize the real problems that are out there. And you this wouldn't be something you would do, but you're not you're not a racial hatred person in the first place. But it's oh, the I'm kind not- it, well no well, go ahead. I'm sorry, you're not gonna Dispute me on that, certainly. <laughs> but and so I think that that's the issue because this is a real thing, and maybe you know maybe it it is being emphasized to a degree that you find to be not in not in line with the available evidence. But if we are going to err, which way should we err? And I think the I think it's a good idea to err on the side of emphasizing issues of racial hatred as opposed to not emphasizing them enough. Well, well then, you know, look, and what, what about though, if you look at, at crime statistics, if you say that um, black on white crime is, is much more common than white on black crime. I mean, those, those are just the numbers, right? Uh, should we view this as, as an epidemic of, of, uh, you know, should should white people be afraid of black people? Of course not. But but that's you know that would be the same if you were to transfer that same message to say, listen, here are these here are these numbers. Uh, therefore, there must be evidence of racial hatred. Um, that's that's my problem is when you get into making that that the narrative, um, it's it's bad for everyone, and again, eclipses often what is actually going on. Yeah, I, I I understand what you're saying, and again, I feel like in so many instances, if if people were were rational and generally good hearted the way you are, that that wouldn't be an issue. But that's just not the case, and so I think you're you're making the error of assuming that people think and view the world in much the way that you do, and that's just not the case. That's kind of my take on it. Okay. All right. Uh, well, before we move on to our next story, we need to take just a quick break and then we'll be back to talk about President Biden's first ever as president news conference. OK, so in his first ever news conference as president, Joe Biden, well, he was asked to comment on a number of things, but uh as you expect, as you would expect, right? I mean, he said well, that's kind of the point. That's kind of right? how it works. Yeah, yeah. Who knows what's going to come up? And you know, he said things like, "Well, he thought he probably maybe would run again in 2024." He said 
his administration was doing everything it could to treat people humanely at the border. Uh, they said that he couldn't imagine U.S. forces in Afghanistan after the end of the year, a lot of stuff. But what stood out to me really was voting rights. And maybe that's my own bias because I believe that this is, or at least it should be, a core issue in any democracy. And the president harshly criticized Republican voting legislation currently in the works in many states, saying that uh, this makes Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle. It's kind of a weird analogy. But anyway, I mean, this is gigantic what they're trying to do, and it cannot be sustained. And in response to this, President Biden pledged to do everything in his power to pass federal legislation on voting rights. He said that the filibuster under which I'm sure, Jay, you you would agree that Republicans would almost certainly block any significant voting rights legislation. Biden said it was being abused in a gigantic way. And once again, he indicated support for modifying it and possibly even going further than that if, in his words, there's complete lockdown and chaos as a consequence of the filibuster. So, Jay, you know, we know that. That didn't take long. No, well, we know (laughs) that a number of Republican-controlled states are set to pass more restrictive voting laws. In fact, Georgia this week led the way. They passed a law that, among other things, required more stringent voter verification for absentee ballots, reduced the time at which voters can request an absentee ballot, limited drop boxes, and even criminalized offering food or water to people stuck in long voting lines. Uh, I, I, I would push back on that. I think that's not a, that what the, the bill did. But it was a but misdemeanor. Yeah, I, I mean, it was that, not a felony, that, but it was That is just like Jim Crow. But, uh, well, it also removed the Secretary of State from serving as chair of the State Board of Elections, gives the legislature authority to appoint a majority of the members on that board, and authorized the State Board to suspend local election officials under certain, basically is more legislative control of the election process. And it's almost like allowing the states to run their own elections. It's almost it's almost like allowing the legislature to to uh, step in and nullify or to change the results of elections they don't like. Uh, is And, you know, I think that's what that's what we're arguing on the left, is that giving these legislatures the power to control these state election boards in this very direct way uh, that basically allows these legislatures to have oversight over elections in which they themselves may be running, which is a clear conflict of interest, in my view, and in the view of plenty of people on the left. Well, all right, fair enough. But how does this how does this get to this is just like Jim Crow? Or more like Jim Crow than whoever Jim, the, the other guy was. Well, you know, and that that I would say is hyperbole, because if you look back at Jim, Jim Crow laws, you know, absolutely much worse than what we're what we're seeing now. But we're looking at the direction that things are going in. And the direction is pretty clearly uh, voter suppression, uh, making it more difficult to vote. I mean, there's so there's a let, very let me, clear you know, trend. Let, let's let's go back a ways. So, Mike, when you and I were growing up. Um, it used to be that you could only vote absentee. And again, this is this is in Ohio. I'm, I can't speak to other states, but I think other states were probably similar. Um, we first started absentee voting sometime, I want to say, probably in the 80s. Um, and the 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 gist was, look, if you were over 65, uh, I think, or were otherwise going to be absent from the county, uh, you could register for an absentee ballot. And continued that way up through probably about the you know 90s or so when it got expanded again um was were we living were we living in in this repressive 
um, society and not even knowing it. Well, I mean, that to me, that's that's what what strikes me is this is the way we we voted for for years. These are the same election laws that were in place that uh, were, were Democratic minority majorities were elected um, uh, in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, and, and yet now it's it's Jim Crow. Now it's a hate crime um, to essentially say, look, we're going to limit the uh, amount of time for you to request an absentee ballot to uh, I'm, I'm I'm what it's down to something like how many weeks or months before the election. Um, I, and that's it, to me that it just well, if, if you're going to make this, the, this, strike, could... this strikes me as the kind of hyperbole that is. Uh, you know, again, they're going to have y'all back so, in chains. When, when, that, when, that is when, hold on, really hold, difficult to to deal with. But when Donald Trump was president, you seem to have a lot less trouble with hyperbole, saying that well, you know, you have to take him seriously, but not literally. And so, right. is hyperbole okay for Donald Trump, but not okay for Joe Biden, or or what's the what's the deal here? Well, I I, I think so. I mean, uh, <laughs> you, you say, no, I mean, I, I, just okay. say, I would say, look, look, the hyperbole is is not helpful in either case. Um, but uh, if you've got look, look, I will I will condemn the hyperbole across the board. And if you want to, if you want to point out, and I, and I think I I think I was 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 good on that, and with Trump, that you don't you you take him perhaps seriously, but not literally. Um, the problem with, with, uh, Joe Biden is I'm, I, I am taking him seriously, right? Well, yeah, but I don't um, understand. So don't take him literally, take him seriously. So when he says this makes Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle, just take that, take that Jim seriously, Eagle. but not literally, because I don't even know what it would mean to take it literally. Cause I don't know who Jim Eagle is, but, but right. the point <laughs> being is that he's saying things, this is not good. That's what he means by that. And I, you know, I certainly agree with that. You disagree with that because things were just fine when we were growing up, seems to be the, the logic. I would say, well, if we want to go back to those rules, that's fine. Then let's let's uh, go back to the rules that required that states with a history of racial discrimination go back to pre-clearance with the Justice Department before they can change their voting laws. I'd be OK with that. I'm, I'm not sure how the, how the two how the two follow, but. But I'm saying you were making a you were making some sort of a history tradition related thing. Things seemed to be fine when we were growing up, and so right. well, no, I'm, I'm saying mean, I'm, well, I'm making the argument that that look the right now everyone's saying oh our, our our voting processes that this is terribly unfair. Republicans are stealing your vote. Uh, they're disenfranchising you by doing you know X Y and Z. Where this has been the way we voted uh, as a country for years and years and years, and no one complained about it. Oh, people were complaining uh, no about seemed... it. I mean, people were complaining about it. You know, it's just that those complaints weren't listened to. We can go back, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, and there were plenty of people who had all kinds of problems voting, and just their their complaints fell on deaf ears. Well, all right. Let's let let me ask you. Let me ask it this way. Uh, do you think? Having to same day registration, for example, that's something that, that a lot of states have wanted to to uh, get rid of. Um, is is that the civil rights issue for the um, for the the twenty twenties? Why why how, why why uh, can't we put a limit saying no? You can't just register to vote and vote the same day. There ought to be a, a, a some sort of period to verify you are who you say you are and you live where you say you live. Well, I think the uh, – see, and this is where we differ. I would say is that the uh, assumption should be – or the, the bias should be toward making 
vote, having as few hurdles as possible to allow people to vote so long as we can ensure that voting is done uh, safely and securely. And we have enough evidence now to know that same-day registration absolutely can work in a safe and secure manner. Plenty of states do it. And so, therefore, I, I would say that we should move in that direction. It's always better, other things being equal, to move in the, in the direction that allows people to more easily express their views in the most fundamental way in a democracy, which is through voting. And there should be a damn good reason for any sort of, any sort of measures that make that more difficult. And it can't be the former president screaming about conspiracies that didn't exist. That's not good All right. enough. Let me let me put it to you this way. And this is this is so often the you know, when we get into these these voting rights issues and, and how easy or, or or difficult it should be to, to vote or not. First of all, I mean, do you think do you think voting is difficult as it stands right now? Not for me, but that's not the problem. So for me, it's pretty easy. But there are plenty of people for who it can be difficult. Yeah, absolutely. What and, and what what are those difficulties? What? Why? Why is it? Why is it difficult? Uh, getting to the polls, getting an absentee ballot, having the right form of ID that would be accepted. Uh, those are the three things that come to mind right away. So. And again, polls are, for the most part, spread out into places where where people live. Right. They're in the neighborhoods. They're in they're divided into precincts, into into wards. Um, yeah, but we know and that people let's put it this way, people have uh always been able to get there beforehand. Now no, in, they haven't. in a lot of states it's not true. Absentee voting is you know, uh, Ohio, for example, and again I'll I'll speak to that because I, I know more about that than I do other states, has for I wanna say ten, fifteen years had a you know, no questions absentee uh, uh voting. If you want an absentee ballot, you, you ask for one, you get one. Um and I think the 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 timing on it is something in the neighborhood of at least has to be a week or so before the election uh on because that way they can get it back in time for the election which is sort of sure. became an issue yeah. in some right and, and to me that i mean do you do you see something like that as being a limitation on on voting no i think that's i think that's a, a good thing i think that's reasonable you know i i so i i don't have a problem with ohio's absentee ballot laws so what if I said you same day registration, no questions, absentee? I walk in, I register, and I say today's election day. I'd like to register to vote. Okay, and I'd like an absentee ballot. Wait, I, I, I guess I don't understand why you would go somewhere and because I, I got to get to work. I got to get to work. I don't have time for this. I don't have time to vote and, and register and vote the same day. Jesus. Well, I, I would, uh, I know, would say that. Let me register. Give me the ballot. I'll send it in. Well, I, I guess I would say that if you can get it, if you can get it sent in before the deadline to send in ballots, then sure. But I don't think I can't control when the post office does stuff. Come on, man. Well, then, I mean, I, I see what you're saying. There are there need to be limitations. It can't be like, well, you know, I forgot to send this in. and It's a week after the election, but you should still count. It. No, I think that there can be reasonable and there there have to be reasonable yeah. limitations. I, for instance, don't have at all a problem saying that every single ballot needs to be in by election day. 
I right. that seems reasonable to me. And it seems reasonable to me to say to people, hey, understand that the Postal Service takes a certain amount of time. We'll we'll talk about this on probably on our bonus show. That and and so if you mail your ballot in on election day, it's not gonna get there in time. So sure, I think that's a reasonable restriction. So but so let's let's put it this way. I'm not way, for then. open ballots, you know, and not even for open borders. But yeah. Well, I mean, all right. So this is the other the other piece that that you and I offer different different on is the idea of voter fraud, and and you say, well, there's hardly ever any any proof of it, um, and and I say, well, it's because nobody ever checks it or prosecutes it. And and look, I'm I'm starting. I, let me be clear, as I have been in like a zillion shows in the past. I don't believe that there's massive voter fraud. I don't believe that. Uh, you know, the election was stolen. I don't believe, but, but I do believe that there is, there are shenanigans at, at every election. Sure. I, I I can't tell you. I mean, I've, I've worked in so many campaigns, so many elections. Um, and I yeah, agree with you about there's this, always stuff that happens. I right? will stipulate now, again, to this. I mean, I, we've, we've talked about this before. Yeah. Absolutely. I would even, I would say that even though pretty much any reasonable, any study that's serious study has been done about this finds, you know, very almost no, like infinitesimally small amounts of, of clear voter fraud. You're right. I can't see how you couldn't be right that what goes on and isn't detected will have to be greater than what goes on and is detected. And so I don't disagree with you there. I think we, we probably you know, are pretty close on that. What I'm saying, and I think what a lot of people on the left are, are saying, I, I would hope, is that we need to weigh the security, the amount of fraud that might be actually happening, even if it's higher than, you know, what the statistics show, against making it, and I understand your reluctance to use the word disenfranchisement, but making it more difficult to pe- for people to vote to the extent that fewer people vote. So yeah. maybe that's not. Has that been an issue, though? Yeah, I mean, it in absolutely the last, has last been. election, again, we've had record turnouts. Yeah, turnouts we, have been going up. We, we had record turnouts in the last election, and that's, of course, because of the nature of the election. And, but but I, think that's, I think it's a mistake to just say, well, there's not a problem here, given the fact that, you know, it's, this isn't just anecdotal. We know that there are plenty of places where, for instance, people have to wait in, wait in line for hours to vote, and that's not okay. I don't think you think that's okay. No, I, I don't think that's okay. But but again, that's not the type of voting reforms that that we're necessarily talking about, right? To me, that seems to be uh, bad local management of resources. And you would make the argument that maybe you need more resources committed to the locals, and and you may be right. Um, I mean, let me to make, me, like one other one other analogy here. Sure. So, you know, for example, bank robberies are fairly rare. Um, and the reason they're fairly rare is, well, because we have all kinds of security. You have, you have a, a guard there, you have cameras, you have, you know, the sound alarms, you have the, the, the bags that blow up with the, the ink on it. Yeah. All these, all these things. Right. Um, and, and if, if you say, well, look, um, do we really need this? Because, uh, these crimes are fairly rare. Let's, let's get rid of the cameras. Let's get rid of the guards. Let's get rid of the, the, the ink bag. Thing. I like this analogy. I do. I think it's a great analogy and I completely agree with it. And what and I, what at I'm, some point you're going to say, no, bank robberies will increase. We say right now we don't have much fraud because of, of X, Y, and Z. Um, but if we remove precautions, if we make it easy to say, look, I'm going to go to one ward, uh, or one precinct register, Go to another vote. Go to another register of vote. Go to another register of vote. Um, 
and, did- and do that. And look, by the time they catch on to it, I've I've voted several times. Um, but but and, stop, let, let and me then, then you get to the account all the votes. Let, section, let me let right? me stop you here because okay, let's go with that analogy. I like the analogy, but what so many Republican legislatures are doing is 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 basically you know, we have this security in place and bank robberies are very very rare. But so now let's have everyone walk through a metal detector. Let's have everyone have a pat down before they go into the bank. I mean, this is uh, we are seeing. These restrictions, these greater restrictions being pushed in state legislature after state legislature after what the Trump administration's own uh, own officials said was uh, one of the you know safest, most well-conducted elections in our history. So that it would be like the bank saying, well, you know, let's have more security, even though we haven't had a bank robbery. I mean, it doesn't. So your analogy works and maybe it's an argument against loosening restrictions, but it's certainly not an argument for what Georgia and a lot of other state legislatures are doing. I I would I would just point out that some of the things that uh maybe to continue the analogy is uh w- the the bank does have to keep up with what the potential robbers might be doing. So so for example, okay, before they had um you got the cameras, you got the guards, you got the ink bag thing. Um but you know what? The bank is now uh, doing a whole lot more cybersecurity than it did 10 years ago because criminals uh, are, are are taking a different tack. There's a different weakness that they've they're exploiting, and that's that's electronically. So we're going to have this cyber thing. I would use that analogy instead of the the metal detector. But I, I get what you're saying. My my point is that because the the way we are voting now has changed from the way we were voting 20 years ago, the 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 ability to um, uh, cheat around the edges has changed also. And and you think it's just coincidental that in all of these Republican controlled states that they happen to be doing this? I mean, it's just because it's a concern. No, with security. Think, no, not, not at all. But I think, I think in the Democratic controlled states, they're, you know, they, they don't care. They're, they're not in favor of this because, uh, I think on the margins, they, they see this as one, it's a good political issue because they can tell, a minority community, I think quite wrongfully, that you are being discriminated against, that people are trying to steal your votes, that this is just like Jim Crow. Um, and second, I think they they believe, and again, I think often wrongfully, um, that greater um, uh, participation leads to greater Democrat electoral victories. And I don't know that that bears it out, but but either way, that's, that's you know. Yeah. You know, uh, we need to just take one more quick break and we want to continue on with this after that, talking about, I think, the prospects for any sort of change, maybe the filibuster. Joe Manchin, I think, will come up and my view on the great favor that maybe Donald Trump has done for the Democratic Party. And we'll be back with that in just one minute. OK, Jay, so we're back. And, you know, I, I wanted to talk to focus to move the conversation, I guess, on to what we think might happen uh, in terms of voting rights, because my sense of things is that we are going to see some legislation. I mean, I know that Joe Manchin has come out saying that he does not, he is not in favor of the For the People Act. He he believes that it goes too He's far. Against the people. <laughs> yeah, but it's a great name for an act, by the way. But I think what's going to happen is, is uh, he, Manchin will be, willing to sign on to something that's less uh, widespread, I guess, less far reaching 
than the For the People Act. And so what, what I see happening and what I, what I predict will happen by the end of this year is that the Senate will put together a, a modified version of that that's far, you know, again, far less sweeping in its legislative intent, which will get the support of, of Manchin and Cinema and the kind of the centrist group of Democrats there. And that will also give them enough support in the face of well, I'm sure will be uniform Republican opposition to put in some sort of change to the filibuster rule. Maybe it will be just for voting rights legislation. I'm not sure, but I expect to see something on voting rights uh, change, uh, some some major legislation this year, and again, some sort of exception or modification of the filibuster rule. I I would be surprised if that doesn't happen this year. Uh, What do you think? Well, I, I would, I would say that this, that does go against both your and my predictions from just three months ago on the filibuster, right? Um, as I remember, we both said that we didn't think, uh, it, it would be changed. Um, I, I, I don't think if it is changed, I don't think it's going to be a narrow, just voting rights thing, because I think it's, if you're going to do it, they're going to do it. No, I don't think so. Um, we'll see. So we'll we'll see. No, but I, I think to me, if you're going to do that heavy political lift, uh, you don't want to have to do it a couple different times. Well, and the reason um, I say that, well, the reason I push back so strong on that is because, I mean, Manchin has made it really clear. He says he will not vote to eliminate the filibuster. And he said that enough times and strongly enough where I just don't see there's any way that that's going to happen. There aren't going to be the votes for that. So it it won't be an elimination of it because he won't be able to do that, assuming that that's what he, you know, it's not just a political thing, but that's what he but, means. And so it go just with, won't happen. You may go with your version, which Biden seemed to sort of endorse and imagine his, his sort of endorsed that go back to the uh, Jimmy Stewart sort of speaking filibuster. Right. I mean, it's going to be something that will allow or that will make it far more difficult to hold up legislation. So, yeah, yeah. It, but it won't. But I'm, what I'm saying is that and this is what we talked about earlier. There won't be just a flat out elimination of the filibuster. That's not going to happen. I, I think I would think you're probably right at this point. Yeah. On that. But do you think do you expect it will actually be modified in some way? I mean, what do you think about yes, my prediction? I do. I do. And what about the voting rights stuff? Do you think that something- I, I think there will be a, a, a slim down um, voting rights bill because I, it's something else that, that we didn't talk about in the last segment because it was more just the you know philosophy of, yeah. of, of these things. But the nuts and bolts of it, I think, are proving problematic. Um, uh, from what I, I read, there are uh, plenty of state and local elections officials who look at this and say, this is just going to be a mess. It's going to be a headache. Um, just in terms of, of, of making these changes and then administratively working them out, um, it, it's going to be really difficult. Uh, so I think there, there will be some pushback as this moves through the Senate where folks might just say, look, this, this might sound good in, uh, in theory, but in practice, uh, is just going to prove really difficult, um, so, yeah. uh, you know, I agree. We'll I mean, I, yeah, I, I've I've read through the For the People Act. There's a lot there. And, and I think there's really too much. And, and there are I'd certainly like to see a somewhat slimmed down version of it. But, yeah, I, I think that's the case. And the other thing I wanted to, to mention is, you know, redistricting, of course, is a huge 
part of this because, you know, that we just had the census and we're going to start to see redistricting. And so the and that's part of the For the People Act, the independent boards, that sort of thing. And Jay, as you know, Ohio, just which kind a lot of, of states already have. Yeah, yeah, some states already have, though, in the majority of states, it's still the state legislature controls that sort of thing. And I'm I'm betting that that certainly will be a big part I would be surprised if that were taken. I think the things that will be taken out would be like the matching fund sort of thing and some of the some of the other uh, voting provisions. But I bet in what ends up being passed, there will be some sort of gerrymandering uh, commission sort of thing, because I think that's going to be seen as so critical in, you know, in this year. I, I think, there, yeah, I. It wouldn't surprise me if some kind of commission. I'm not sure what exactly they're going to do or what actual power they'd have. But, yeah, I think there will be like good lip service for it. And that, you know, and that doesn't necessarily have to be up that. And that's obviously the idea is that's not a partisan sort of thing. And, and I think maybe to me the best sense. The, well, it, yes and no. To the It depends on how they write it. Uh, yeah, right? I mean, sure. the extent that this is a, a board that that gives advice and sets out uh, parameters and here's the way it ought to look and that kind of thing. Uh, it's fine to the extent it is something that encroaches on state sovereignty uh, to to district uh, their own their own electable districts. Then it's something else. Well, and just just to be clear, there I mean there really is no state sovereignty here. The Constitution allows Congress to uh, pass whatever laws it wants here on this. So this the, isn't the, but the Constitution issue. also allows states to set up their own procedures for for voting, and states uh, have, have set up their right. own procedures for district. But what I'm saying is that Congress could pass essentially whatever kind of federalization legislation it wants Congress on voting. Can, Congress can preempt. Yes, exactly, and that would not be. Uh, yes, yeah. uh, that gets into our. We talk about this a lot on the show that there are things that are unconstitutional that you may think are wise or unwise, but it would be incorrect to say that Congress passing whatever kind of voting rights or voting you know procedures legislation is in, unconstitutional because that's not really the case. Okay, and you know also I I think and this is I hinted at this before the break is that I feel like in a sense Donald Trump might be a inadvertently a big friend of the Democratic Party, because it occurred to me that, you know, for, for one thing, had he not done what he had done in the wake of the election, we probably wouldn't have a 50-50 Senate, right? There'd be 51, maybe even 52 yes. Republicans oh yes. here. Yeah. And, and you know, I really think that Donald Trump has sort of given the Democrats an opportunity that they would be, you know, uh, to, to kind of not not to help the Democratic Party. I I mean I certainly don't look at it that way. I look at it in, in expanding voting rights, and it's certainly not what Donald Trump intended. But it sounded like you you kind of agree with me on that. Oh yeah, I mean I I think Donald Trump put his own interests uh, well ahead of of the the party. There's um, a shock, and yeah. and in which you know that there were I think disastrous results in. Um, in, in Georgia because of it. Yeah. And, you know, to me, the not, back- even, not even, not even own interests. I mean, that's not even the right word. Um, his ego, own vani- his own vanity. Yeah. 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 I think you're right. You know, to me, the one of maybe the best sense that something will actually happen here is Mitch McConnell is starting to sound increasingly desperate on this issue. And I think he maybe recognizes that this is going to, this is going to happen, but, um, but we will see, you know, one final thing I wanted to uh, ask you about Jay is just the importance of news conferences in general. A few weeks ago on the show, Trey and Ken were talking about this, you know, and, and uh, uh, according to Biden advisors, 
The plan was always to delay his first news conference until after the stimulus package had passed so he could kind of do this as part of kind of a victory lap tour sort of thing. But then there are others who claim that, well, Biden's being very carefully managed by, you know, presidential handlers due to well history of verbal gas, which is obvious or of more concern. Some people on the right say, well, diminishing cognitive abilities. And Ken and Trey focused on this specifically. And Ken actually had an interesting argument. He said it to him, it didn't even necessarily matter all that much if the president didn't have the mental stamina now that he had 10, 20 years ago, as long as he selects kind of the, you know, really good people to run things. And, and I wanted to get your take on just in general, the importance of these news conferences and if it really matters if Joe Biden is getting out in front of the press and answering questions. I think it matters a little bit, uh, right? And I think it matters more when you're 87 years old uh, than if you're 57 years old. Sure. Um, because the, the the story isn't that, um, hey, why aren't we hearing from uh, Joe Biden? Uh, or the, the story isn't, isn't, hey, you know, boy, we really need an, an update on this or that. Uh, the story is it looks like he's he's being hidden. And this this is, of course, would be also be of a piece with with the campaign. Now in the campaign you could say well, look it was covid and and so forth so people weren't doing events and you know that that was a safety thing and and uh there was also political messaging that um fair enough um but but I do think you know when you are 87 years old uh, 78 um, 78 yeah. I'm sorry <laughs> big difference Did I say 87 <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes well uh, he just strikes me that way. No, anyway, well, let's hope he's not. Yeah, would... of, 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 of a mature maturity of, of Joe Biden, um, you know, and and he he has had gaffes even in his good days. Um, you know, recently forgot the the uh, uh, Secretary of, of Defense's name and said that he's the guy who runs that outfit down the street. Um, now again, there before the grace go, grace of God go I, right? I mean, I have plenty of times where I forget somebody's name or or misspeak or just you know freeze. Uh, so certainly, it's you know it can happen to a president who's got a lot on his mind. Um, but I think that the, the issue there is, you know, if you have someone who's before the media, and you know every day and and every couple of days they'll mess up mess up a name or something. Well, that's one thing. If you have somebody who you never see, who you know makes gaffes, and then you never see. Uh, there's a there's a different sort of presumption there. So, um, you know, do I think there do I think presidents need to be holding news conferences all the time? No, um, but I do think after, when when there are issues of uh, these issues out there that the president owes some sort of reassurance uh, to the country that 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 he's capable. Yeah, that that seems pretty reasonable to me. I think that's more or less my take on, on that as well. I mean, it seems to me that the, certainly there is a narrative, not not what I would say on the mainstream right, but kind of further on the right. Well, you know, this guy is mentally uh, in decline, that sort of thing, just like I think there was during the Trump presidency, right? A narrative uh, on, on the further parts of the left that Donald Trump was mentally ill. Right. Well, I wasn't even the further parts of the left. I would say that the <laughs> well, I mean, certainly we'll, we'll say on the left. The left. I think, yeah, the, yeah. And so I think it's it's you know it's easy to it's easy to read too much into that. And uh, sometimes I think it's sort of wishful thinking because anyone who says things that you don't agree with, you'd like to believe, is mentally unstable or losing their marbles or something like that. And uh, but but yeah, I think that. Uh, so I don't take as strong a position as Ken on that. I, I do think 
that it's important for the president every once in a while to get out there and answer questions in front of the media, uh, not just to demonstrate that he is uh, Campos Mentos, but because to show that, I mean, I think it's just part of being a president in the democratic system to face the press, to be out there and to take whatever questions. And I think that's uh, I think that's an important thing. You know, but yep. like you said, not every day, not every week, but I would say it seems to me once a month is reasonable, you know, or something like that. So there you go. All right. Well, we have gone a little bit long. So with that, we will wrap things up for today. But uh, before we do, I just want to remind everyone that as soon as we are done, we will be recording our midweek bonus episode for our Patreon supporters. And on that, We'll be talking about a Supreme Court ruling about uh, excessive force and uh, the and uh, the uh, Fourth Amendment. Uh, help me out here. Unreasonable search and seizure, search and seizure provision. It's really kind of an interesting case. Being shot. Exactly. Uh, that's kind of cool. Um, oh, I've been seized. Yeah. Well, yeah. We we will talk about that and also some big changes, perhaps in the works in the at the Postal Service and a lot of Democrats up in arms about Postmaster General DeJoy on that and maybe. Maybe a little bit more of seeing how much time we have, but all of that will be there on Wednesday morning for you if you are a Patreon supporter. And if you aren't one and you'd like to be, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. And again, as always, if you would like that and you're just not in a financial position to be able to support the show right now, send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you set up. If you're not already a subscriber to the show, it would really help us if you did that, as well as leaving ratings and reviews, and especially if you'd share your favorite episodes on social media. If you want to get in touch with us for any reason, we're at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you will find those links in our show notes. Special thanks to our executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you join us.